Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Obedience can be very difficult, but perhaps the only thing that is more difficult is the result of disobedience. I read about a man who wanted to sell his house in the Dominican Republic for $2,000, Another man wanted to buy it, but because he was so poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house for half price, but with just one stipulation. And it was that he would retain ownership of just one small nail protruding just over the front door. After several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner was now unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, and hung it from the single nail that he still owned. Well, as you can imagine, soon the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of that nail. The moral of that is, if we even give the devil even one small peg in our life, He will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. This is why obedience to the scripture is so very important in every area of our lives. Because if we are slack in our obedience, we can be very sure that Satan will find something foul and vile to hang on that nail in our lives. Look at verse 15 with me. Jesus speaking says, If you love me, keep my commandments. In these verses, Jesus has expressed the condition of effectual prayer as being prayer in his name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Now it's as though as if he elaborates on those thoughts adding that it also means that love for himself will include obedience to his commands. If we do not keep Christ's commands, we cannot really say that we truly love him. For what we might call love could just be mere sappiness or affection. And be sure of this, the life of obedience is the life of revelation. Apparently, the Lord does not feel compelled to reveal certain things to a person unless that person has been obedient to what God has already called them to do. And that makes sense, really, doesn't it? Why should the Lord give them the next thing to do if they haven't been obedient to the previous thing he has told them to do? So maybe even this morning, there are some of us here who are asking for wisdom and guidance in a certain area of our lives over here, but we are still in disobedience in a different area over here, and we wonder, why isn't God speaking to us? Why would God give us more light if we aren't already walking in the light that he has already provided? Now, I think one reason that we don't obey the way that we should is we just don't have an adequate view of what sin really is. 
We can be so surrounded and so saturated with sins in this world that we can't see how depraved our flesh left to itself can truly be. We have no clue of how evil sin really is before an absolute holy God. And because of that, we can misunderstand so much. Let me remind us that the cross alone is the source of our remission from sin. Puritan William Gurnall writes, If men are so bent into getting into hell, why must they be so polite and precise about it? Compromising with sin is ridiculous. It's as absurd as the condemned man's request on his way to the gallows that he asked to avoid a certain street for fear of catching the plague. What good will it do for you to arrive in hell by way of spiritual ignorance and pride rather than by the avenue of open profanity? What lust is so valuable that it is worth burning in hell for? When Darius escaped Alexander, he threw away his heavy crown so that he could run faster. Gurnoff finishes by saying, is your lust so precious you cannot leave it behind rather than fall into the hands of an angry God? This is foolish reasoning. The Puritans just have a way of smiting my heart. So, why obey? Well, the meaning appears to be to make the commandments one's own and to take them into our inner being. Jesus speaks not only of having the commandments, but also of keeping the commandments. That means it is more important to obey them in daily life than to just have a firm intellectual grasp of their content. Now, here at Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse, but it is much more important that the Bible goes through us. So am I saying this morning, if we don't perfectly keep all of God's commandments, that we really don't love Jesus? No, of course not. In the same way that children don't always obey their parents, but they still love their parents and cannot live without them. Now, some will not be able to say this, so they may actually love Christ more than they really even think that they do. What I mean is, if you are one who would like to love him, but who has not been able to do it at least to your satisfaction, let me assure you this morning, you will never learn to love by imposing it upon yourself as a duty. You will never love by saying, I will love, I will love, I will love. Any more than you can stop coughing by saying, I will not cough. There is only one way in which you will come to love God, and that is by coming to know and to believe in his immense love that he has for you. Or to say it another way, love provokes love. His love calls forth yours. Consequently, the way to love God is to learn that God loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son for your salvation. In fact, 
Only love will succeed in moving us to keep the commandments of God. Here, Alexander McLaren has written wisely. The principle that underlines these words, then, is this. That love is the foundation of obedience, and obedience is the sure outcome and result of love. I'm reading a great book right now by Watchman Nee in which he is talking about the fact that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ because of what Christ has already done for us. Listen to his excellent insight. He writes this. What does it really mean to sit down? When we walk or stand, we bear on our legs all the weight of our own body. But when we sit down, our entire weight rests upon the chair or couch on which we sit. We grow weary when we walk or stand, but we feel rested when we have sat down for a while. In walking or standing, we expend a great deal of energy, but when we are seated, we relax at once. Because the strain no longer falls upon our muscles and our nerves, but upon something outside of ourselves he finishes by saying so also in the spiritual realm to sit down is to simply rest our whole weight our load ourselves our future and everything upon the lord we let him bear the responsibility and cease to carry it ourselves That is the place that I personally am trying to get to in my own life, to fully rest in the finished work of the cross. Do you know what's weird? If we fully grasp that, instead of working less, we will work even more fervently, not to attain our salvation, but for the joy of having our salvation. Verse 16, please. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. There's a lot of confusion today about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. J.I. Packer has written of this ignorance. He writes, Christian people are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did, They know that he redeemed men by his atoning death, even if they differ among themselves about how exactly that is involved. But the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the Holy Spirit does. Some talk of the Spirit of Christ in the way that one would talk of the Spirit of Christmas, as a vague cultural pressure making for affability and religiosity. Some think of the Spirit as inspiring the moral convictions of unbelievers like Gandhi. But most, perhaps, do not think of the Holy Spirit at all and have no positive idea of any sort about what he does. They are, for practical purposes, in the same position as the disciples that Paul met at Ephesus when they said, we have not even heard as if there is such a thing as a Holy Ghost. But here's what I want us to get. Despite all of the ignorance about the Holy Spirit, Jesus says he is going to give us a helper that will abide with us forever. 
And if you weren't aware, we are in dire need of help. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't permanently indwell people, but instead he would be said to come upon them for a particular ministry or a particular work. I'll give you an example from the life of Samson. This is Judges 15, 14, where we read. Next slide, please. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. So the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that was burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. So we see here the Spirit coming upon Samson at a particular time in order to kill the enemies of God. Now forgive how I think, but one part of this has always just astounded me. It's not that Samson killed a thousand men with a jawbone. It is what could that last enemy have been thinking? I mean, he just witnessed 999 men get killed by Samson. You would think the next verse would have read, and the last Philistine saw the carnage and took off running, yea, even quickly. Now, that would make sense, right? But instead, I can imagine him stepping knee-deep through all those corpses and then shouting, you want some of this, Samson? Now, that probably didn't happen. But I feel like this is a safe place for me to share the things that concern me. Anyways, the point is, is we do need help. An unnamed church father said, we have in the Old Testament God for us, in the Gospels God with us, and in the Acts and in the Epistles God in us. Now listen, our lives are so hectic that in some ways trying to live your daily life probably reminds you of trying to walk across a rain-swollen, raging, torrential river. Constantly finding the turbulence just picks you up every so often and just sweeps you off your feet. And next thing you know, you're struggling to get back on your feet. You're trying to walk across and you Desperately look around for a rock or, or an island or somewhere just for a while where you can get away from the turbulence so you can get up your strength to go back in again. Now, everyone agrees with this more and more every year. Therefore, our bookstores are just choked with meditation techniques and ways of finding that quiet inner power, finding that island in a sense. From the biblical point of view, so many of these books are on how to get centered. They're simply just meditation techniques. They're consciousness-changing techniques. There's all sorts of ways of doing it. But biblically, these are all just substitutes for the Holy Spirit. Did you know that one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to help us pray, and more than that, to actually pray in and through us? Next slide, please. Listen to Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. If we don't know God in prayer, we're going to try to find some kind of substitute. But what we really need and what every human heart really wants is intimacy with the infinite. You want a heavenly father that you can pour out your heart to. And then you can listen to him about his love and his grace and that he truly believes and cares about you. That creates that inner power, that inner core. It creates that inner island. Prayer is the thing that we are after. Now, Jesus Christ almost in passing mentions prayer. It's very brief. Essentially, he only mentions it in verses 13 and 14 where he says, I'm going to the Father so you will do greater things than what I have done. And I will do whatever you ask of my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. It's so concise, and yet it's so powerful. All the guidelines of prayer are right there in that little nugget and in that little seed. I want to lay those things out so we can look at ourselves so that we can understand how we can find that same type of inner core, how we can have an island every day that we can go to to have a center from which we can move out of these turbulent waters of life that surround us. I'm preaching at me more than I'm preaching at you because I want and I need a more vibrant and robust prayer life. But the Holy Spirit does more than just to help us to pray. He actually comforts us. And although comforting sometimes involves correcting and convicting, The Spirit is not a buzzard who circles around us hoping that we will fail so he might come and pick at us. Nor is he a screeching hawk who makes a lot of noise, striking fear in the hearts of everyone around him. No, the Holy Spirit is likened to a dove, known for its gentleness, beauty, and purity. Truly, he is the comforter in reality. Now, there is a grammatical point in this verse that we need to understand because it colors everything that follows. It's found in that phrase, another helper. Two different Greek words can be translated another, allos and heteros. Allos used here means another of the same kind, while heteros means another of a different kind. The difference would be seen is if I would hold up a Honeycrisp apple in front of you this morning, and I would announce next week I was going to distribute apples to every person present. However, when I went to the grocery store, I was not able to obtain enough Honeycrisp apples, so I had to buy some Galas. The result next week would be some of the congregation would have Honeycrisp and some would have Galas. Those with the Galas would have another of a different kind or heteros. But those with a honey crisp would have another of the same kind, or aloes, just like the one I'd held up. Now here's what I want us to get. The word that Jesus uses to describe the coming helper was aloes, which means another helper exactly like him. 
Jesus was comforting his disciples by assuring them that they did not need to be troubled at his leaving because the helper or counselor that he would send would be just like him. There would be no loss in the exchange. So much so that in, the, in Romans 8 and 9, the apostle Paul actually calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. That helper, it means come alongside to assist. The Holy Spirit does not work instead of us or in spite of us, but in us and through us. And so here the meaning of the word helper or comforter is of great importance. Now, it is unfortunate from the point of view of us trying to understand this term that in the English language, the word comfort has been watered down. So now it means little more than a half-hearted attempt to console someone. Now, it can, for example, be like a, a Linus blanket. In fact, that's not far off linguistically. For one, use of the word comforter is to describe a certain kind of quilt. This is often what we have when we think of comfort comfortable. We think of rolling up our blanket and consoling ourselves in the hard knocks of the world. We usually think of comfort as soothing someone, consoling him or her. And to some extent that is true. But true biblical comfort strengthens us to face life bravely and to keep on going. It does not rob us of our responsibility or make it easy for us to give up. That's not what that word means in the Bible. But a certain measure of consolation is involved in it. To understand the biblical word, we need to go back to the Latin word that lies behind our word comfort. There are two of them. The first is C-O-M, which is a preposition meaning with. The second is fortis, from which we get our words fortication, fortify, fortitude, and fortress. It means to strengthen. Put them together, you have the true biblical meaning of what a comforter is. A comforter is one who is with you to strengthen you. He has, as one commentator writes, a ramrod down your backbone to make you stand for the truth, to make you take the right side, even though it may be the minority side. The comforter gives you strength to stand up in the face of something that is vile and evil. And we live in a culture that is marked by vileness and evil. And so if Christians have ever needed this kind of strength, it is in the twisted and perverse society that we find ourselves in today. And Jesus has promised through the Holy Spirit in that, to give us this comfort. <clears throat> Excuse me. But how can we be sure we're going to receive all these things that Jesus promised us? Well, we now have the Spirit inside us, and He is working against the various enemies that our own heart has. Things like accusations and, and temptations. And he does it by telling us the truth. Do you know how to receive it? It is by the Holy Spirit understanding that he is our advocate. Now, whenever you look at ten different translations, you find six different words translating 
one particular Greek word, you know that that Greek word has such a richness to it that the English word just can't convey it. It just can't carry all the freight that that word contains. So let's ask ourselves three questions. Who or what is an advocate? Who or what is the first advocate? And who or what is the second advocate? Because you see, when Jesus says, I'm going to send you another advocate, he must mean there was already a first one. So if we're going to understand how to get this peace, and if we're going to understand all these things that Jesus is talking about, we have to understand what an advocate truly is, who the first advocate was and who the second advocate is. And we have to do th two things for that. We have to believe and we have to obey. Here's how it works. You have to obey the second advocate, which is the Holy Spirit, because his primary work is to point you to the first advocate, who is Jesus Christ. Now, we know the scripture teaches us that Jesus is in heaven interceding for us to the Father. But let me ask you this. Have you ever failed so much in an area that you thought surely eventually God would tell Jesus, no, that's it. I have forgiven him 2,067 times for this exact same thing, and he still doesn't get it. Now, this is it. It's been 56 years for this guy. I guess I just chose a lemon when I chose Bill Scott. So as my Christian walk progressed, I had to wonder how all that worked. Now Charles Hodge was a powerful preacher in the 1800s, and he had a sermon entitled The Advocate. And he helped me to understand what Jesus was really doing up there in heaven. He took his text from 1 John chapter 2, and this is what it says. Last slide, please. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. And this is what Charles Hodge said. He said, you have to realize that Jesus is in heaven as your defense attorney. And a defense attorney isn't always begging for mercy, but instead is actually making a legal case. So that means Jesus isn't asking the Father to show mercy one more time because God has already showed his great mercy when he sent his son to the cross to obtain our salvation. That's where we got our mercy. But now Hodge says, this is what Jesus is doing. He is saying, Father... The wages of sin is death, and the law requires payment, and I have paid that bill. Do you see those people down there? They are, they are a mess. But some of them have come to me for forgiveness. So I have paid for their sins, and since I have made that payment, it would be unjust for them to pay for it. And so you can now love and accept them. And here's the thing I want us to get. 
and not to do so would be unjust. And so, Father, I'm not asking for mercy. I'm asking for justice. And justice says there is no condemnation for those who believe in me. The Holy Spirit was given to us to help us to understand and remember this. The Holy Spirit's job is to defend you, especially against the enemies in your own heart. For example, in Romans 8, 15, it says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of a son who comes into our heart crying, Abba, Father. You know what that means? When your heart is filled with fear and you have done that thing you swore you would never do again and after you confess it and repent it and you still feel guilty, then the Holy Spirit comes in and argues and says, no, God still loves you. You are his child. One verse later in Romans we read, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, there's a place in 1 John 3.20 where it says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. But a small paraphrase I'm just going to say, when our hearts condemn us, the Holy Spirit is greater than our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit's job to argue even against my heart when it's telling me things that aren't lining up with Scripture. And that works both ways, by the way. In some cases, he will argue against us when we are doing wrong and yet are unfazed about it. At that time, like Hebrews 12, he will convict us of sin. But there are also times when we are not in sin, but we can be self-condemning. The Spirit will come at that time and assure us that we are children of the Most High God. Have you ever wished you could just speak to Jesus just face to face? So you could share your, your deepest concerns with him and, and your fears and right in his physical presence. And you could watch his face as he listened to your as he listened to you and gave you understanding and loving feedback. You might tell him, Master, I, I thought I'd have in my life all together by now. But I I've never felt more disoriented and confused. What's the answer? Or perhaps I feel worthless. I do my very best, but I always come up short. What is wrong with me? I believe this. After our personal interview with Jesus, we would find our doubt and our worth substantiated, our security established, and all of our emptiness would be satisfied. To talk with Jesus would give us the greatest comfort and strength for our lives. The logic of our text tells us that having the Holy Spirit is the same thing as having Jesus, accessible to us, only better. Imagine today if Jesus was in Jerusalem, all the airlines would be packed trying to get there. You wouldn't be able to get a seat on the plane, and people all around the world would be trying to get to him. And if we even managed to get close enough to where he was, there would be long convoys and great crowds of people. We would come to see him, but it would be nearly impossible to get near him. But I want us to understand, if you, have, if you don't understand anything else this morning, we have access to the Holy Spirit 
right now and always. So as we finish, let's sum up what we've learned. Jesus established an unbreakable connection between love for God and obedience to his commands. Later on, Peter would want to express his love in a blaze of glory with his sword in his hand at Jesus' last stand. But his master asked for something I think far more difficult, and that is daily and consistent obedience. However, the Lord knows the human heart. He knows that we are woefully incapable of that kind of obedience in our own strength. So Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come to dwell in the hearts of those who believed in him. If that didn't stun those 11 men, it should have. So I hope that we are all in awe of the fact this morning that if you are a Christian, you actually have God, the Holy Spirit, living inside of you. Let us pray. Well, we need you today. We need to be filled with your spirit so we can walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. We need this because not only does it please you, it truly is the recipe for a deep and satisfying life. So we ask that you would touch every person within the sound of my voice and to be to them what they need you to be, whether that means salvation, sanctification, or just strength for another day. And we ask you this in the one and only name that has the power to do that, and that is you, King Jesus. Amen. And this morning, if you would like to talk to me after,